0: When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard them speaking in his own language. Utterly amazed, they asked, are not all these men who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in his own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia, and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues, amazed and perplexed. They asked one another, what does this mean? Some however made fun of them and said, they have had too much wine. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice and addressed the crowd. They will prophesy, and I will show wonders in the heaven above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This is the word of the Lord.
1: So on the day of Pentecost, when the disciples woke up, they weren't expecting this. They weren't expecting this at all because they didn't know what to expect. See, what they knew is the day of Pentecost was the day 50 days after Passover. They also knew it was one of the three major feasts and Because it was one of the three major feasts, if you were a devout Jew, you would travel to Jerusalem at least once in your life for one of those or all of those three major feasts. They knew a lot of people would be there. They they knew it was a festival celebration of harvest and later a celebration of the law giving from Mount Sinai. They knew that, but they had no idea what was about to happen. When they stepped onto that stage, and and they didn't know it was a stage, something dramatic happened. Before they were actually in public, there was this mighty wind. You heard it red in the place where they were gathering, and there were these things that looked like fire on top of their heads. They didn't expect that, and they didn't expect what followed. But they were knowledgeable enough of the tradition of the Old Testament scriptures. They knew that wind was often symbolic of the presence of God. As a matter of fact, the word in Hebrew, spirit, the spirit being poured out on the disciples that day, the word spirit actually could just be simply translated breath. As a matter of fact, if, if you were Hebrew, the word spirit could hardly be pronounced without exhaling almost violently. I can't do it for you. But a person who knows Hebrew can do it. And they would be expected to do it. Spirit meant breath of God. As a matter of fact, the Spirit of God, of course, didn't come into existence, the Holy Spirit, on the day of Pentecost. The third person of the Trinity was eternally coexisting with Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. But on that particular day, the manifestation of the Spirit was profound with wind and with fire, or breath and fire. In the Old Testament, the Spirit is frequently referred to. As a matter of fact, at the very beginning of our Bible, in Genesis chapter 1, when we hear this creation narrative of how all things came into be, The statement is that the Spirit of God was hovering, or moving, or you could even even put this word in, breathing over the waters. It's an image, a mystical image, of the presence and Spirit of God hovering over what was formless and void, and in and with the life of the Spirit, life is infused into formlessness and void, and life springs up. Not only that, in the next chapter of Genesis chapter 2, it says that Adam was created from the dust of the earth, and God, same word, breathed on him, literally breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and he became a living soul. Isn't that a wonderful, colorful description of the presence and the power of the Spirit? Here's another, but it's a contrast. It comes to us in Isaiah chapter 2, verse 22. Isaiah is painting a contrast between God and humanity, and he says this. He says, why do you trust in man or humanity? Man who has but a breath in his nostrils. He's speaking about how life itself is associated with breath, and our breath is just there. And one day, it will be gone. Why do you trust in man who just has breath in his nostrils? You can see the contrast because this is way in advance of Genesis and the beginning of all things. But when you recall the beginning of all things, you realize that the breath that we breathe and the life that we experience in this world is literally an extension of the very breath of God. Existence is not possible apart from that. So Isaiah says, trust in God, not in man who has breath merely in his nostrils. So the disciples experienced the breath of God. But the disciples also experience something else, that flame, that fire. And that too is symbolic of the presence of God. We see it multiple times in the Scripture, just one to remember. When the people of Israel are moving across the desert and they hardly know where to go, except that Moses guides them by the Spirit of God, how do they know how to go? Pillar, which is a cloud during the day, and at night, a pillar of fire. The presence of God. So wind and fire are always symbolic of the presence of God. And on this day, that's how God shows up. He doesn't show up that way every day. But this day he did. What happened when the presence of God in fire and in wind or breath showed up? Speech happened. They began to speak. Peter and the others stood up and started proclaiming the gospel. And remarkably, they started proclaiming the gospel in other languages. Languages that were not their native language. And the people were astonished. How are these people standing up there speaking our language? Or to put it more directly, what are those Galileans doing up there talking in another language? There's probably two reasons for that. Galileans weren't known as the sophisticated people of the Middle East. They probably didn't know multiple languages is sort of the implication, the way maybe other highbrow people did. Furthermore, the Galileans, we know this from looking at the text, not this text but others of course, the Galileans had a particular accent and their particular accent was, well, silly to most people. They couldn't even pronounce the words correctly, it was almost like it was a lisp because they just spoke differently. I don't know if it was a little bit like Cockney, you know, in England compared to real English accents or something like that. Or maybe it was like those people up in the Northeast who really don't speak English very well, you know, I don't know. Or maybe from the South where I grew up. The the point is, they looked at the Galileans and said, they can't even speak their own language, why are they speaking mine? They don't even know how to pronounce their own tongue, why about mine? They were amazed by it and they said, well, we're hearing each other. In our own language. So speech came out of this fire and this, this wind of God. But there's something else that came out of it. It was power. Unbelievable power. You know what the result of the power was? Skepticism. You didn't expect me to begin there, right? No, I want to begin there. The result of the power produced skepticism. The power of multiple languages, it called people to say, are you kidding me? That's just babble. you're drunk. I want you to notice, at least on this occasion, I'm sure the disciples aren't perfect. But when they were mocked, which is what it says, they were mocked, they didn't get angry. They didn't lash out. They didn't launch a culture war against Rome or the Pharisees. You know what they did? They very astutely took the criticism and used it for an opportunity to explain. You criticize? No, really, let me explain. Notice, it's really early in the morning. Who gets drunk at this time of the day? Now, you may say, well, some people do. People who are always drunk do. But in that culture in particular, you wouldn't be drinking this time of the day. People had wine all the time in the first century, but it didn't start till well afternoon. And in the evening, you had wine with your meal, but you didn't drink for breakfast. And Peter's saying, come on, let's be sensible here. We're not drunk. Do You think all of us started drinking at 6 o'clock this morning? That's not what we do. Furthermore, he said, there's something else going on here. As a matter of fact, what's happening is God's poured out His Spirit upon us. And God promised He was going to do that for all flesh, not just the prophets that we used to think about as being anointed by God, but all flesh, young men and old men. Older women and maidens, all across the board, the Spirit of God is going to be poured out upon them. And they're going to be able to prophesy and speak and proclaim. That's what's happening. And Joel told us it was going to happen. So instead of anger or retaliation, he used the criticism to explain his position. Another result, this is the one you expected me to lead with, right? Right? 3,000 people came to faith in Christ. On that day, 3,000 people became Christ followers. And that's remarkable in and of itself. Whatever evangelistic endeavors people have, it's likely you're not going to run into anybody who is instrumental in the conversion of 3,000 people in one point in time. It is remarkable, but there's something else that's remarkable about it. The conversion of 3,000 people was strategically located in history to transform the world. Because these people are from all the region that they call the known world. All around the Mesopotamian, I mean the Mediterranean Sea region. All of that. As a matter of fact, um, we have inscriptions now of Hebrew from this era. That go as far north in Europe as Crimea. Philo, a scholar historian, suggested that in Egypt at this time, 38 AD, there was an estimated one million Jews in Egypt alone. So the Jews are spread all over the Roman Empire, and on this big day of celebration, people from all those regions that you heard read were there. And when they became Christ followers, they took it back. And the gospel just exploded on human history. We think of the gospel as growing when Paul the apostle followed Jesus into the world, which he did. But it happened before that. There were believers in those places because of this day. Now that's the story. I want to move from the particulars to the universal the particulars of the story to the universal application of life together for us. And we use four points to do it because what I see in the story is first, a perfect synergy. An absolute perfect synergy between the divine and the human. Why? Why does God do this? Because God uses us just like we are. You see, God doesn't bypass humanity. He transforms and infuses humanity. It's at the heart of the incarnation. It all started with Jesus himself. I suppose he could have done it another way, being God, but he didn't. He infused human flesh and became one of us. And when He chooses to work through the Spirit, He infuses, empowers, and transforms real people with real flesh and blood and real sin. Think about who these disciples were. At the garden, they fell asleep. When Jesus is going through the agony and travail of soul leading up to the cross, they can't even stay awake to pray with Him. And at the cross, they all went M.I.A., missing in action. And further, the most famous story of all is Peter who denied him in the face of a simple question from a young girl. Those are the people he chose to infuse with his power. Those sinful people. That's beautiful divine synergy. You know, um, there's a wonderful phrase that Paul gives in Romans chapter 12, verse 1. And you've got to wonder if he had the incarnation in mind. He said, what I want you to do is I want you to present your bodies, which means more than flesh and blood, your entire being. I want you to present your entire being as a sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God. I want you to take your everyday life and turn it over to Jesus Christ. I want you to take all your strengths and all your weaknesses and turn it over to Jesus Christ. I want you to take all the sinfulness because that's who we are as humans. All the unholiness that is us. And I want you to turn it over to God. I want you to get on the altar and give it to God so that God can glorify himself through You? Yes, through you. That's the divine synergy that's going on here. Disciples who are sinful. People people who denied Christ. So, you know, the message is, is pretty simple. He loves you just as you are. He takes you Right where you are. He uses you just as you are. You don't need any special gifts. Don't go looking for them. You just need a willing heart because He uses you just as you are. And He empowers you just as you are. His strength made perfect in your weakness. So, do you feel weak? Maybe you're ready. Do you realize you're sinful? You're poised to be used. Do you feel like you don't have it? God's ready for you. A divine synergy happens in this passage. There's a second thing. There's a unique creativity going on here. You know what I mean by that is that God on certain occasions, uses certain methods for a certain reason. Consider this for a moment. We don't hear the disciples going to different parts of Palestine following this event and having a repeat performance and being able to talk in multiple languages everywhere they went. Do you remember that one? I don't. What we do have is disciples walking into situations that they felt ill-equipped to handle. And we have God showing up. And He always shows up in unique, creative ways. He always shows up in ways you would not expect it to accomplish His purposes in your life. So this is not a cookie-cutter approach to how God works. It's how God once worked. And God will work again. And He will work in the unique situation that you find yourself in. Remember the words of Jesus uh, when the disciples were a little stressed out about him leaving in John chapter 14? They were really worried, and among other things, they were worried that they were going to forget what he said. And you know, he said to them, Don't worry, stop worrying, because I'm going to call to your remembrance everything I've said and everything you need to know. I'll do it for you. And he did. That's how we got it. The Spirit inspired it. So we have divine synergy, we have a unique creativity, and we got a beautiful, beautiful diversity. <laughs> you know, we, we recognize that there are certain um, religions that seem to have accompanying them a form of cultural imperialism. Um, they're not diverse, it's just one way. But you know what? If we're honest, we have to admit that Christianity has manifested itself that way on multiple occasions. We've imposed cultural values on other cultures that are really not the kingdom of God. And when Christianity does its best work Just like God infuses humanity, Christianity infuses culture. It doesn't completely change culture and make everything monolithic. It uses the beauty of multiple cultures to express the glory of God. That's what's so awesome about Christianity. It is so absolutely diverse and international and colorful. I've had the great opportunity to travel into many parts of the world to visit missionaries. You know what, I, stri- what strikes me as the most powerful, exciting Christian communities around the world? The ones that don't sing American songs all the time. Seriously. They're creating their own. The one whose worship services don't look a thing like what we're experiencing right here. They're expressing that in their own culture. Whose clothing doesn't look the same. Whose traditions don't look the same. God, by His Spirit, just steps into all those diverse cultures and He allows those cultures to express His glory. I have to admit, I've been to some um, places of the world where I could have just closed my eyes and I would have thought I was in the United States. And those churches were about as dead as a doorknob. I kid you not. The cultural diversity of the Christian church is something to embrace. It's beautiful, and it reflects the Creator. Because you remember the end of the story? The end of the story is God gathers all the saints from all over the world, every tribe and every language, to praise Him and to glorify the Lamb that's on the throne. So here is a shameless promo for the 10 o'clock Sunday worship service in the summer. There's going to be a, hopefully, infusion of culture, not a clash of cultures, okay? You're going to step into a worship service on every other Sunday, as long as you're not a spoiled brat. Every other Sunday, you're going to step into a worship service that's not like this one. There'll be some infusion But there's going to be some stately hymns. And if you happen to be here this Sunday and you usually go to the first, you're not going to experience the first every Sunday. You're going to experience an infusion of the contemporary. Celebrate it. (laughs) Celebrate it. We're different. And our difference is a beautiful mosaic of divine grace. Let's use everything to express our affection for our wonderful God. So third, I, I see this beautiful diversity. And, and fourth and finally, I see a dynamic life. An incredibly dynamic life. The Holy Spirit is the breath of life for everything that lives. but more specifically, the Holy Spirit is the breath of life for the church. The Spirit gives the power to the church. If the Spirit is absent, the church is dead. It's just walls. You've been in some beautiful edifices before and the presence of the Spirit was absent. The Spirit is the giver of life, and without the Spirit, there's no life. The Spirit is the guide to truth, and without the Spirit, we can't understand. I don't care how smart you are, you'll never get it without the Spirit. The Spirit unifies. There's no real fellowship in the church without the Spirit of God. Because we drive each other crazy otherwise. But the Spirit unifies us. And the Spirit speaks always. Do you ever notice this? Take a look at the, if you do a little quick Bible study, you'll notice the Spirit always speaks about Jesus Christ. Never about himself, never about the gifts, always about Christ. Everything, according to the Spirit, is about Christ the Son. And so, when we are infused by the Spirit, the Spirit himself produces the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, patience, gentleness, self-control. So, as I was preparing for the sermon, I thought about us, right? You expect that? But also thought about me. And here's what occurred to me. It was a little unnerving, really bothersome, convicting. And it was this. I spend a lot of my waking hours planning for the church studying for the church preparing to preach and teach for the church exercising administration in the church and if I were to compare the amount of time I do all that With the amount of time that I pray for the Spirit to be upon us. I'd be utterly ashamed. I suspect that I'm not alone in this. So you're not the pastor. You spend all your time trying to be good whether it's a father, a mother, a child, a student. You spend all of your time organizing your life so things can be okay. You spend all of your time utilizing every gift that you know you have because you've got to do it right. You spend all of your time, the list goes on. And how much of your time do you spend just crying out for the Spirit of God to be on you? And what you do. If you're like me, far too little. So I grew up in a church that sang lots of songs, and, and they're just like deep in my memory, and some of them uh nobody sings anymore. That's okay, they're still good. And and one song, it it's not even in our hymnals. I I at least I couldn't find it, that I remember uh, had a like a chorus that went with it, that went like this. It says, Come, Holy Spirit, I need thee. Come, sweet spirit, I pray. Come in thy strength and thy power. Come in thy own, Can I had the word unique, and gentle way. There are other verses to that song, but that's the essence of it. And so, as this summer we attempt to follow Jesus into the world, I hope we can pray this prayer of the song and, of course, use we. Come, Holy Spirit. We need thee. Come, sweet Spirit, we pray. Come in your strength and your power. Come in your own gentle way. Josiah said last week he can't imagine that God wouldn't answer the prayer if we prayed for God to open our eyes to opportunities to share the gospel. It's kind of hard for me to believe that God would ignore this prayer too if we said, come, Holy Spirit. So let's do it together. Gracious Lord, um, we thank you that you chose us we remained bewildered by that reality. Um, shows sinful people, silly people, stupid people. <laughs> but you chose us. And you gave us uh, a mission. And you promised us that we wouldn't be alone. That you would never leave us or forsake us. And with the disciples we were promised that your spirit would come upon your church and empower it so we we actually pray for your power Lord we're kind of afraid to pray for it because your power is outside of our control you're a wild and unpredictable God but you're God and we're not So we ask, Lord, that uh, you would pour out your spirit upon us, that you will come, Holy Spirit, in your sweet, gentle way. You'll transform our hearts by faith. You'll empower us for service. And you'll accomplish your purposes in our life, not because of us, but in spite of us. And then we'll know it's the Spirit. And we'll give you thanks. In the name of Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen.